2: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to give you a little bit of heads-up as we get into this week's Legion Clubhouse. Uh, You're going to want to avoid reading Superboy 210 uh, because it's a racist magazine. There you go. I said it.
0: Superboy number 210, Soldiers' Private War. Published August 1975. Written by Jim Shooter with art by Mike Grell. Synopsis, An Ancient Warrior is Revived but he's not done fighting. Matthew. Yes. There are no black people in the Legion
2: of Superheroes. Did you ever notice that? I I knew that. Yeah. We've you talked er- about that a lot. You ever wonder why there are no black people in the in the in the uh, Legion of Superheroes?
3: I blamed it on editors.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> uh, We have two stories this week that are super super problematic in my opinion. Okay? Uh, Soldier's Private War is the first one. S O L J E R, soldier. Yeah, because oh. a soldier S O L D I E R uh, passed away and he was resurrected two hundred years later, and he oh. he thinks his name is Soldier. Soldier.
3: That's the last thing he remembers hearing. Soldier.
2: Yeah. Um, problem with Soldier is he was supposed to originally be a black person in this yeah, according-
3: story. According to artist Mike Grell, he's actually drawn as an African-American person. And if you kind of look at it, yeah, there, there are some page, things that...
2: On page four, lower lower right corner, you can tell that that's yeah. kind of what he was uh, drawing, wanting to draw. But,
3: there are definitely some things that you'll see when someone expects a character, especially with 70s coloring, when, or, uh, when they expect a character to be colored as African-American. And you see a lot around the the lower lip. There's always a um, lot of really dark shadowing. Yeah. You know, to try and give some definition because they're going to be doing the, you know, the coloring that they have. But yeah, it's interesting to me the reasoning given why Soldier, according to the editor, couldn't be an African-American person.
2: Well, according to what Grill said, apparently they were getting ready to introduce a black character and they didn't want Mm -hmm. to have a black character who was problematic, because in this case, right. soldier was we don't know which side he was fighting for, but he was supposed to 200 years ago during World War four attack Metropolis. He has now arisen and he only remembers his last command, which is go and attack Metropolis. And because right. he's got antimatter energy busted up in him, he can fire imaginary guns and destroy everything. So, you know, having a black person at this time of year coming into a major metropolis and blowing things up probably would get a bunch of people uh, riled up.
3: Well, and, you know, Murray uh, who was the editor, actually said – and I'm not saying that this is wrong either because there's definitely something that could be said for this argument. We've never had a black person in the Legion of Superheroes comic, and having the first one be the villain, having the first one uh, – his words, I believe, according to Grell, were not be perfect – Would be a problem. Yeah. And, you know, you can see that having that first character, first of all, be somebody who showed up the way soldier does in this story 200 years in the past, which then makes you say, oh, my God, what happened in the ensuing two centuries to where there are no African-American people in metropolis at all? And then, of course, they answer that question in a few issues in a very, very bad way, but we'll Which get there. It becomes e- even worse. <laughs> 2.16. Write it down, kids. It's yeah. 2.16. It's going to be a long one.
2: Yeah, it's going to be really, really weird, too, because of just the, the nature of Tyrock and and, yeah. his, Tyrock uh, and his people.
3: Is, Tyrock is one of those characters where really all you can say is, they tried.
2: Yeah, That's I mean, That's literally so all you can say. We should point out that when we talk about... Um, The first black person in the Legion of Superheroes. We're not talking about the first black person in comics, because that would be like Lobo, the the Western character Lobo from what, like 1950 something like
3: Lobo was the first character to headline his own book. Yes. Uh, Lobo from Dell Publishing did two issues in 67 or Ah, 67. Okay, Okay. Uh, Yeah, there's actually a review of Lobo number one if you go digging on Mm Majorspoilers.com.
2: And also then you have uh, Black Lightning. Mm-hmm. At which I don't black know Lightning if that is what
3: Black Lightning shows up in 77. This yeah. Is so still 75.
2: Yeah. So in this interview, when Mike Grell is talking to Bolton and he says, hey, we have a black uh, superhero coming. He's referring to Black Lightning. And so that is why they can't use. Uh, I think
3: they're referring to Tyrock, who shows up before Black Lightning. Really? In 76. Mm, OK. Yeah. At this point in time, D.C. had Nubia. Uh, who is Wonder Woman's sister, Right. who, very problematically, the story of uh, they made Wonder Woman from clay, there was some light-colored clay and some dark-colored clay. Oh, man. Yeah, it's cringeworthy. It is. And by 75, we may... Well, we definitely have Mal Duncan. He doesn't yet have a costume. Mm -hmm. But Mal was a member of the Teen Titans very briefly. And his girlfriend, Karen, uh, who becomes the Bumblebee in 75 or 76, is around at this point. But DC's real first forays come in 77 and 78 with uh, Black Lightning and Vixen.
2: Why is it almost a decade later for DC to catch up to to Marvel? Because Black Panther debuted in like 66 in, in Fantastic Four.
3: Because Black Panther was specifically created by two progressive creators, one of whom, Happened to be the editor-in-chief and primary writer. Yeah. They didn't have the same, you know, they didn't have the same structure that DC had to wade through. DC at this point is, I believe, owned by the Kinney Shoe Corporation and or vice versa still. We're getting to a point where DC is going to move to a different huge conglomerate, but at the point where Marvel started doing what Marvel was doing in 66, Marvel was editor-in-chief Stan Lee publisher stanley's father-in-law yeah or uncle i can't remember markle martin goodman yeah and there wasn't there wasn't really any sort of there wasn't any bureaucracy they had to go through the editor-in-chief wrote a story jack kirby drew it or you know jack kirby came up with a story and the editor-in-chief dialogued it you know depending on how you look at the situation but marvel didn't have anybody that they had to approve i mean I, we've we've glanced at it before. There are stories about Mort Weisinger uh, and some of the DC editorial being absolutely adamant that there should not be representation, specifically African-American representation in comics. And whether that's because of potential controversy or not, whether that's even true, I don't know. But it's definitely something that we hear. And it's interesting that it's only after the Weisinger era that these things can even start to happen. So Yeah,
2: so just to kind of put this into a bigger perspective, this isn't just a DC Comics uh, problem, right? This yeah. is a problem that plagues much of television. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, you know, shocking that you have in the ni- in 1969, 60, uh, 70, uh, Kirk and Uhura during a, doing a, a kiss. Right. Um it is and even
3: that they had to cheat a little bit.
2: Yeah. And then if you have uh if you look in the movies, uh there if you look at the major motion pictures, uh black actors traditionally were relegated to minor roles, usually uh not, you know, the the criminals, the thugs, those kinds of roles, right? You have certain right. exceptions. You have certain actors that were considered okay at the time. Sidney Poitier, uh, for example. Bill Cosby would be another example. Maybe not today would not be a good example. But those would be examples where uh, they were essentially given a pass uh, to be in movies. But even then, those movies that they were in were often um, not big blockbuster. I mean, you could look at um, uh, Heat of the Night would be a good exception. Look who's, yeah. look who's Coming to Dinner would be another exception, both Sidney Poitier Uh, movies. But, you know, this is something from and this is I don't know if this is a myth. This was something that I've read a couple of articles on. I haven't done a lot of in-depth research, but one of the things that plagued even Star Wars uh, by the time you get to to its production in 75 and its release in 78 is George Lucas did want to have uh, an integrated cast. But the studio said, no, you can't put people of color in your movie Because that's going to affect box office results, which is something that I've heard multiple times is that uh, studios and maybe this is the case with D.C. is they didn't want to lose their southern uh, their southern customer base. And so you avoided these things to, you know, keep the pearl clutchers from from freaking out and uh, boycotting your company. And. a couple of the articles I've read have basically said, no, that is absolutely not the case, even though people will point to that, uh, though fear of losing. There is absolutely no indicator that anything like that was going on. And so I don't know. This is just this is one of these weird times in, I mean, just another weird time in history where you kind of have to look at something like this. And especially in the next story that we'll be getting to, you look at mm-hmm. something like this and you just kind of shake your head and say, what were people thinking? I mean, we are at a time where you know, the dawning of Aquarius and then peace, love and happiness. And but at the same time, we've got Vietnam going on. Uh, We have uh, turmoil in the streets. We have, uh, you know, the 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 fear of race riots uh, happening all the time. Um, And I think, unfortunately, media tended to, uh, especially in movies and television, when you're casting people of color in certain roles, you uh, contribute to negative stereotypes and I think in hindsight, we would look at those kinds of things and say, yeah, the media really kind of messed things up. So on the one hand that I'm not forgiving Bolton off, but on the one hand, I could see, yeah, we really don't want a a person of color being the bad guy here because that could send a wrong message. Right. But at the same time, it's been 10 years, D.C. Why <laughs> don't you get some black people in your comics?
3: Right. And that's the thing. I mean, they would we get to Tyrock. It becomes clear that there are ways that they can do things to where it's almost worse than Mm -hmm. not having the character. And I feel like part of it is a matter of overthinking. And that's where I think this issue falls apart because, well, Soldier's story, if it would not necessarily be terribly different if you were looking at a person of color rather than just, you know, the regular kind of tannish pink guy that you see because comic coloring is limited. It's four color printing. Oh
2: man, this is like a literal case of whitewashing here.
3: It absolutely is. And this is the thing. The story itself is kind of tense, but also kind of nonsensical.
2: Yeah. I mean, here's this guy imagining that he still has this thing. And because he's he jumped on a grenade, a a classic trope in in your military uh, storytelling, man jumps on a grenade and dies to save the rest of his platoon happens to be an antimatter grenade. So, as I mentioned, he has this antimatter uh, powers that allow him to shoot bolts out of nowhere, pull out an imaginary or an invisible uh, knife and stab Phantom Girl right in the gut. Yep. Phantom knife. Yeah. Phantom knife. And then again, beyond the, the person of color issue, we have Chameleon Boy who I don't think uh when we look at um uh when we're looking at Jim Shooter, I don't think he really I think he's trying to give Chameleon Boy some more interesting powers, but turning into a ghost is not a chameleon power.
3: But we've seen him do it before. That's I mean, the thing. And that I I don't know if we're, you know, able to accept that because it's a legacy thing. But we saw Chameleon Boy way, way back in the day, turn into a phantom and travel. I yeah, can't remember if it was to bug tussle or into the phantom zone, mm. but it's established that Reap Daggle can in fact become a phantom. Does it make sense?
2: No. Um, probably, it really makes about as, it. probably makes about as much sense as the ending of the story where it is Princess Projectora who comes in and causes Soldier to see Uh, the Metropolis destroyed because of his hard work. And then uh, uh, his sergeant shows up and says, oh, you're done now, soldier. You can rest. And then the guy instantly dies,
3: which doesn't even get a line. Projectra does not even get to speak. (laughs) It's funny. And she just she takes out this problem with a literal snap of her fingers, which I think is great.
2: Well, it's also a chameleon boy, too, uh, going as his as his commander. But just the fact that So let me ask you a question, because this is going to come up in the next couple of stories, right? Uh, Especially when we get to 2.11 with the ultimate revenge. He's dead. Was he dead before? Because he seemed to be alive. And because of the way Chameleon Boy and Projectra are tricking this guy into thinking that his job is over, he keels over and dies. So are they not responsible for his death should they not be kicked out i mean this is i mean back in the back in the days of the 70s when things were simpler uh you could probably just say ah you know that's the guy just died on his own but today right. in the splitting hair society uh i think that uh i think that these two might be kicked out of the legion
3: the panel that introduces soldier specifically says he's less than alive so i mm. think we're supposed to look at him as a zombie as an anti-energy zombie.
2: Hmm.
3: Um, I do find it interesting that this story specifically says that anti-energy is this weird and wacky thing. It's a lost secret from 200 years before that nobody understands. And I'm like, well, if anti-energy is that big of a deal, what the hell is wildfire?
2: Yeah. Well, because I mean, that he's is I mean, literally
3: made of anti-energy.
2: But he's only made of anti-energy because of an accident, right? Mm. So it's not like he was born with the power. So it's something that they're rediscovering. The other thing, I think I mentioned World War Four earlier. Uh, the, the the war that was 200 years ago was World War Six. Somehow yep. between 1975 and uh, 20, uh, 20, what is it? 2875. 2675. Uh, yeah, know. there were four world wars. And again. Well,
3: if this story takes place in 2975. Yeah. Then somewhere. It's actually, it between... takes place
2: in 2986 or something like that. Because, you know, I mean, this story does, but the World War four took place 200 years before and they, they cite the date in 2783. the twenty
3: seven eighty three.
2: Yeah. Twenty seven eighty three.
3: OK, so in the year twenty seven eighty three, they were in the midst of World War six. And um, it should be noted that somehow this story actually retcons back, if I'm not mistaken, that the persuaders atomic axe is another relic
2: of, oh, of World this War age. VI. Oh, interesting. And that's retconned, yeah, you but- say?
3: That retcons in. I don't remember where it comes up, but I know it comes up later.
2: I mean, I find that very fascinating. And we have talked about the current Legion of Superheroes series a a la 2020 that is running at DC Comics, uh, Mm -hmm. where the lead up to that kind of showed the progression of history of Earth leading to the formation of the United Planets in the future uh, Mm -hmm. and all the different. Wars, the Commandees, the, you know, the Atomic Knights, all that stuff, all the different time periods in there and trying to tie them all together. So it's interesting that this falls within one of those timelines that Bendis is is trying to streamline in that Legion storytelling.
3: Mm, Yeah, the uh, actual of the legitimate, I guess I should say, official DC future for many, many years had an unexplained disaster sort of years, which Mm. is part of the reason why the Legion doesn't have complete knowledge of all the things that happened after. So let's say a Legion story written in 2060 or in 1966 references something as never having happened. And in 1970, that happens. The future Legion should know about it, but because of the disasters or the wars, Lots of information has been lost or misapprehended. So, yeah, it's actually a kind of a nice little, you know, storyline MacGuffin tool to say, oh, we didn't know that all of that history was, yeah, lost, was lost because yeah. of the Great War.
2: Uh, this is a not good story. Just once you know about the whitewashing part of it, uh, that makes it super problematic. But otherwise, it's really kind of a dumb story to begin with, I think. I mean, I don't know. It, it just it's really weird
3: it has something going for it, but it's, it's a long walk for a short drink of water because it, it had this been the whole issue. I feel like they could have fleshed this out and had it make a bit, you know, more of an impact. But mm-hmm. as, as a, a half issue story a 12 or 15 page story, it doesn't really work simply because there's too many places in it where you're being dragged along. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah. He stabbed her with a knife that isn't there, but, chameleon boy can uh,
2: feel it i mean it's really weird yeah, yeah. so i i yeah. say big thumbs down on this story uh this is one part one of two reasons why you should not read superboy 210 <laughs> this week oh hey matthew did you notice all the uh the Kung Fu ads that are in this issue, learn the secret powers of the deadliest killers in the Orient, the physical mental power of the ninja. Or, yeah, then you go a couple pages later to Count Dante, the deadliest man alive, black dragon fighting society. What I really uh, find fascinating in these is on the ninja one down in the bottom corner, it says, attention, law enforcement agencies. Because of the nature of of the techniques revealed in this training manual, we feel it's important to make this manual available to law enforcement agencies throughout the world. Please write for discount prices on your official letterhead.
3: (laughs) You know, um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Certain effects completely reshape the groundwork of comics. And one of those was the death of Bruce Lee in 1973.
2: Yeah, definitely. And so we get into this next story and it is about Karate Kid, which is nice, I guess that your, you know, your creator gets to come in and focus once again on your origin story. But I should point out that even though Bruce Lee made big inroads to American cinema and bringing Asians into the forefront as heroes into American cinema and television, right? Um, we are still kind of in the middle of yellow peril type stuff. Uh, You know, in, in, in the early parts in 1917, uh, you, if you were Asian, you were not allowed to become a citizen in the United States. Then they had in 1922, the, the married women's independent nationality act, which meant that if you were an Asian woman married to a, a white guy, then you could become a citizen. Right. Uh, But if you were a woman, white woman who was married to an Asian man, you could lose your citizenship. Yeah. Uh, Then there was this uh, Japanese guy, uh, Takeo Ozawa. He took the government to court in 1922 and tried to say that uh, basically his argument was that Japanese Americans were essentially white and therefore eligible for U.S. citizenship. And of course, the court struck him down on that. And then two years later, The national origins quota of 1924 excluded all Japanese people from entering the country as citizens. I don't want to say that there is a uh, causal effect there, but there is definitely a strong correlation between those two things. And so even even going back into the 1800s and through the through the 1900s, um, you know, going into World War II, especially in the 1930s, we had this idea of the yellow peril that. Uh, Asians were going to come into this country and uh, do horrible things to us. You know, uh, kill our women, uh, steal our lands, uh, kill us in our sleep. All these horrible, horrible, sell horrible opium things to our children, sell opium to our children. And the reason why it's called the yellow peril is in the way that the Japanese and Asians were depicted yes. in. Uh, comic books, in, number in one, in cartoons, number one. I mean, we look at Fu Manchu as um you know he's a a yellow peril a villain that has been around since the pulp era in the 19, 1920s. But he is a uh, a villain in the pages of of DC Comics. You can go and look at the very first Detective Comics uh, cover, and he's right there, front and center, all. That's in actually his...
3: a, a rip off called Fui on Yui.
2: Is, is that who it is? But uh, it yes. is. Yes, it he's,
3: is. He's he's not Fu Manchu, but he's definitely Fu Manchu.
2: He is definitely Fu Manchu without being Fu yeah. Manchu. So I mean, we look yeah. at Charlie Chan, we look at all of these. Um. Uh. You know the 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 broken English. Uh. Caricatures that yeah. we see of of uh, Asian Americans are not just Asians in general in film. Yeah. And again, time period is dictating that. Oh, these are the enemy. This is something that we should. Uh, that that's okay to do. Uh. But then that continued well after World War II. Uh, continued yeah. into the nineteen sixties. Uh. You can go and see a movie. Um. What's the one with uh, Frank Sinatra? The Manchurian Candidate. Uh, where the uh, the Chinese are trying to um, um, brainwash, Basically
3: mind control the next president of the United States. Th-
2: then, of course, we're in the middle of Vietnam right around this time, uh, and so a lot of times the Asians come off as criminals, just like people of color in the in the previous story. Uh, they come mm-hmm. off as criminals. They come off as minor characters, and then we get uh, Jim Shooter, who I think is trying to do something right. By introducing an Asian character in the form of Karate Kid into the Legion of Superheroes. And for many, 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 many issues that he's been introduced up until now, he's come off as a white guy with black hair. Mm-hmm. And that's, as we'll learn in this story, the second story of this issue, he has a, I believe it's a American mother and an Asian mm-hmm. father. And yes, so he is a, he is of mixed heritage, right? Mixed race. Um, but the weird thing happens, and this is Mike Grell doing the art. He fluctuates between looking like Jackie Chan and looking like Bruce Lee throughout this entire issue.
3: It is interesting that a half Japanese character is so obviously based on a famous actor of Chinese descent. That, I mean, granted, again, much as we as I said with Tyrock, and I will continue to say with Tyrock when we get there, is they tried, Yeah, you know, they were, they were trying to give us a positive character. And even if you look at this issue, uh, brings back the sensei karate kids, uh, teacher from his first appearance way, way back in like adventure three sixty seven. Yeah. Something we like saw that. the sensei one, for like five seconds. Number
2: one, we mentioned this before. If this is the first time you're listening though, the dude's name, his real name, it's not sensei as in teacher or master or anything like that. His name is sensei.
3: He has it's not another like, name. It's not he like Sensei Bob it
2: it's not like Sensei Bob Ross. It is Sensei.
3: He has another name. He just hasn't gotten it yet.
2: I Somebody know he hasn't realized the Shiro that they haven't realized the error of their ways. Oh, well, maybe we shouldn't just call this guy sensei. Well, okay. He's so one of about
3: three DC characters who are called sensei or yeah. the sensei too. So. so
2: the other thing that's going on is even though there are miscegenation laws that are going on that pre, pre, uh, prevents interracial marriages uh, during these time periods, I think in Kansas miscegenation laws uh, ended, I want to say in like 1971 or 1972, something like that. Uh, but there is because of Bruce Lee and because of this influx of cheap movies from Asia, the Kung Fu craze, Kung Fu becomes a big deal. So that is why I was I was poking fun at these learn the arts of the ninja and uh, Lord Draco's uh, super fighting ninja squad or whatever that he's that is that they're advertising. This is still really popular. So you would under you could see where Jim Shooter is coming from to say, let's introduce uh, an Asian uh, martial arts expert and mm-hmm. show, you know, how great this is. And then not only do we have Mike Grell drawing Bruce Lee in the pages, but then we send the pages off to coloring.
3: Yeah, here's the thing. In the 70s, the four-color printing process insisted that to identify an Asian character, and I'll give them credit, they're not bright yellow.
2: They uh, they're pretty are, close. Fact, they're orangey, deep orangey, yellow. Bronze orange. yeah. yeah
3: that that is the asian color in comics that's the first yes, probably uh... 60 issues of shang chi master of kung fu yeah. you know and again you can blame it on whatever you can blame it on. Uh, I blame it on a combination of the limitations of four color printing and just complete tone deafness on the
2: I'm going to blame it on tone deafness and and um, internal racism. I guess just, you know, it's like, hmm, what color do we color Asians? Well, Pantone says, oh, uh, peril yellow uh, peril yellow number 527. That's the color we're supposed to color these people. And I, it's just when you look at it and you see Karate Kid next to the layer the, to all the black dragons that are running around and with Sensei you're like, wait a minute, something is not right here. And this is something I would definitely not want to show my kids because even though we've explained to them that, look, you are part Asian and you are part white, you have to realize that there are still deep-rooted racial issues that go on in this country that are going to plague you in the future. And we are here to support you 100%. You shouldn't feel any less than uh, who you are. Um, But you're going to see people who are going to call you names and who are going to say, Uh, things to you and i would hate for them to see this and go well here's karate kid beating up a bunch of other asian people and they're all this weird color and i'm not that weird color is this how people see me and develop a stigma or develop an uh, a weird identity crisis over this
3: right it is i mean it is problematic it's extremely difficult
2: oh no it's it's straight up racist man it's not problematic it's straight up racism
3: All right. It still makes it very difficult to read these comics without kind of wondering how much of this is intentional. Now, again, one thing that also needs to be taken into account is that old paper does tend to yellow. So the color that we are seeing, because we are, in fact, not looking at reprints, we're looking at an
2: actual issue. I don't have my Legion omnibus, which would include this in it. I could I I should go run and find it to see if they recolored because that seems to be a trend in comics these days is to go back in and yeah. redo the color straight up to where, you know, um, a good example, a prime example is to go back and look at the killing joke uh, that was in the 1980s. The re-release that they did for the 20th anniversary, I believe it was 20th or 30th anniversary, must have been the 30th anniversary. They went back and recolored all the pages and it's a totally different book. So I would have to go and look and see if. The coloring was changed, but even then, this is not just the yellowing of paper because we can look at the borders and we could go in and do a white color correction, uh, or white balance on here, and they're still going to be really oh, yellow. Yeah, they're still going to be orange. Yeah. So there's there's that problem. And I, I mean, I get to that first page and you just see how offset they are. And focusing again on here are these people of different color who are portrayed as the villains of the story. Even sensei, we learn. Even though Sensei is supposed to be this person who trained Karate Kid, the greatest kung fu martial arts uh hand-to-hand fighter in all of the galaxy, we find out he's the bad he's the bad guy. He killed Karate Kid's dad, who was, oh, surprise, also a bad guy.
3: Well, he yeah, he killed Karate Kid's dad. It's one of those weird situations where the Legion's code against killing kind of, you know puts this in a weird light because we see sensei fighting the evil black dragon and mm-hmm. punching him to death. Mm-hmm. But then we also look at the fact that murder weighs on you heavy because 20 years ago when Al Val was a baby, uh, the sensei was like 57 years younger. Yeah. So I, yeah, the black dragon, <laughs> the, bla- the black dragon who is, yeah. who is Val's father uh, gets killed by the sensei who's ostensibly a hero and
2: and and the and yeah. and, and then the weird thing is the uh the leader of the Black Dragon is essentially the Dread Pirate Roberts because it's not a person's name it's a title that gets passed down from right. father to son or in this case from father to first lieutenant because uh after uh since he kills the Black Dragon he feels so bad i don't I, oh the mom died in childbirth uh, right. but he feels so bad that he takes the kid as his own and raises him as an orphan and doesn't tell him anything about his history until now when he busts into his father's old headquarters and Sensei's sitting there going, yes, it is me. I am the black dragon. But wait, let me tell you the story. And then you're just like, what in the what? This is spun out into all sorts of ridiculousness.
3: Uh, It's one of those things. The main issue here, just in story terms, is uh, the creator's pet. Because seriously, this is a huge creator's pet story where you know, I see what Shooter is trying to do. Shooter is trying to make sure that Karate Kid, who does not, you know, theoretically have superpowers, gets his just desserts and mm-hmm. gets a place in the mm-hmm. Legion. But mm-hmm. it, what it kind of comes down to is that trying too hard thing. And a lot of the kids that you and I grew up with were totally into, you know, throwing stars and oh, the yeah, theories totally. of ninjutsu. And oh, yeah, all totally. Of these things.
2: Yeah. That's why I didn't do it, because she- all the bullies. All the bullies in my school were the ones who were taking the martial arts class and bringing their throwing stars to class. And I was like, there's no way I want to be in martial arts and be involved with these guys. And then I saw the Karate Kid movie, and I was like, see, this is the reason why I don't want to be involved in martial arts.
3: But Shooter was way ahead of the curve on this, and he really does try to make it clear that Val is, and I hate to use this phrase, but I'm going to because of the way it's it's definitely here, one of the good ones.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: You know, I, I get it. It's 1975. Uh, whatever it is you're doing. yeah. You know, and, and by the way, we need to talk about Val's undercover clothes here in a minute.
2: Oh, yes. But, we'll get to that as well as tracing. Doing,
3: he's trying to show us a Japan that isn't entirely feudal. But still has, you know, some of the traditions Mm -hmm. still has the things that he respects, the martial Mm -hmm. arts stuff and the Mm -hmm. whole, you know, uh, we we are a people of honor and we have our secret hidden crime sects. And that's SECTS, by the way, in case my clearance wasn't there. But yes, yeah, it, it this is not a good story.
2: No, it's not. And what's even weirder is at the very beginning. Val goes from looking like a white Jackie Chan to on the final page, looking like a slightly darker Bruce Lee.
3: Was Jackie Chan even a thing in 75?
2: Oh, m- well, maybe not in for the U.S., but he was in the movies since he was a very young age. In fact, he's in many movies with, uh, with Bruce Lee. He's in a couple movies with Bruce Lee, if you go in, and look it up. Uh, so he is not unknown to uh, Asian cinema in the 1970s. Yeah,
3: I didn't realize he went that far back. I thought he was after Bruce Lee in like 77 in
2: the United States when he when he came out as a um, a bigger actor. uh, Then he started getting bigger roles. And I forget what his first uh, movie role in that his movie was released in the United States. Something something cop
3: probably drunken master. Well, drunken master
2: would be one of the first ones that we see that most people will see him in. But you can find um, movies of him when he's a young child um performing cuz he was in that acrobatic um troupe um right. that did these kinds of things. So, um the other thing is we make a lot of fun who's the tracer? Um who's the tracer that we always make fun of in this day and age? Who who's notorious for tracing porn stars into the comics? <laughs> Greg Land. Greg Land. Um he may have had some influence or some inspiration From Mike Grell, because as you look at some of these fight sequences and some of these poses, they feel like they are tracing them right out of a Kung Fu magazine.
3: Uh, I think that if you look at Grell's wonky anatomy, especially in the flying sidekick on page three or four of the story, Mm -hmm. you can definitely see that uh, Grell is an aficionado of uh, the Kung Fu, but he's still wonky Grell anatomy that body does not exist in nature well but you don't you don't even notice it you don't think about it
2: no but i'm looking at some of these things and looking at uh some of the poses and some of the the action sequences here and it's like yeah i'm pretty sure i've seen this in a Bruce Lee pose or a still shot or in a kung fu magazine from the time period so yeah there's some there's some serious uh things going on in this issue bottom line if you want to know a little bit more about karate kids history I guess you can read it, although you should know we've told you everything that you need to know since I killed his dad, then his mother died in childbirth, and then since I felt bad and decided to raise him as the greatest kung fu fighter in the world, that's all you need to know. But seriously, don't read this issue. It is, it is racist from the top to the bottom, from the first page to the last page, and I say skip the entire thing. It is not worth your time. I found it incredibly offensive. Matthew, do you have any, any thoughts?
3: I don't know. I feel like neither story works particularly well, and part of that is the balance between them being off, but yeah, there's definitely and we've said from the beginning there are going to be issues that don't age well, and this is one of the ones so far that hasn't aged the not well Asked. Yeah,
2: agreed.
0: If you enjoy the show, we would appreciate your support. You can find out more and become a Legion Clubhouse member at Patreon.com/slash Major Spoilers. Superboy number two eleven, the ultimate revenge. Published September nineteen seventy five. Written by Jim Shooter with art by Mike Grill. Synopsis: Will Element Lad sacrifice his heroic career for revenge?
2: All right, we are into what Superboy two eleven now.
3: 211. You know what I forgot to mention last issue?
2: What did you forget to mention last issue?
3: The Legion heads are on the cover.
2: Oh, so tell us about the Legion heads, because I'm like, what? They decapitated them, and and, uh, they're going to have to go before Congress and say, did you really need to show the bloody stump bleeding out with the axe?
3: You have to be so literal.
2: I'm just wondering. Please explain to our listeners...
3: The top of the cover used to have the go-go checks. We were like, oh, go-go checks. Yeah, we, we did checks. the whole
2: thing on the checks, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, well, now the cover has the official DC banner across the top, the line of DC superstars. And on one side, you have this lovely uh, Nick Carty shot of Superboy, and to the right, for about 10 or 12 issues, you see the headshots of six or seven legionnaires.
2: Now, does this change, or is it, is it uh, stuck with uh, Santa Girl, Mon-El, uh, um uh, Brainiac? Uh, who is that, uh, That's phantom F- girl, phantom girl, uh, either cosmic
3: uh, boy or Mon and shadow lass. Yeah. I don't know that it changes. I don't think it changes. I okay. haven't actually gone and looked at all of the issues, but it's actually something that I remember from some of the very first issues of Legion that I ever bought back issue was, ooh, that look at all these cool characters. That guy's green. Mm-hmm. The heads on the cover always fascinate me. And, mm-hmm. I loved it when Marvel used to do their corner box era, where the upper right hand yes, corner of I each like book, that, yeah, yeah, had the little picture. Mm-hmm. This is kind of DC's take on that for a while in nineteen seventy five, nineteen seventy six, and it doesn't last very long. But it's kind of neat when it does happen.
2: Yeah. All right, let's talk about the ultimate revenge. What happens ultimate when you uh, find out the man who not only murdered your parents but murdered everyone on your entire planet? Yes, I'm talking about the return. Of Roxas or Rockus or Roxas or Roche. Roche,
3: Rochambeau. Rosh, no, it is Rochas, canonically Rochas. Now, I will tell you this I have and will probably continue to say
2: Roxas. Yeah, that's what I say too.
3: That's what it looks like to me. But yeah, officially, yeah. according to DC canon, it's Rochas.
2: So, Rochas. pirate. Yes, he's Rochelle. a pirate. So uh,
3: known here's the... to His friends as Terrence Stamp,
2: <laughs> because that's what I was getting to. <laughs> if you have ever seen General Zod in the original Superman movie wearing that that black disco uniform, yep. imagine Roxas wearing that with not the head of Terrence Stamp, but the head of Vincent Price. And I find you know, that so... Zod
3: kind of has that same beard in the movie, uh, too. Yeah,
2: sure. And maybe that's where they're drawing some inspiration from. But this guy definitely looks like an older Vincent Price. Not like old, old man Vincent Price, but like uh, middle-aged Vincent Price. Um, <laughs> you know, before he did the uh, the Michael Jackson album.
3: Monster Horror Chiller yeah, Theater.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this is what I find so fascinating about this issue, is there is one panel where Roxas is trying to get to some hidden... Uh, base where all the criminals in the galaxy can hang out for a free for for a fee and not be hunted down because the get this in space if you paint your uh, space station black no one will be able to see it now i want to get back to that and i'll come back to that in just a moment but as roxas is getting out of his spaceship he runs into the haven master gora the haven master and it's so weird because you have Roxas who is dressed as 1975 disco pirate. And then you have the Haven Master, which is, remember in all the, the complaints I had about um, uh, the 1960s fascination and the 1950s fascination with uh, fantasy uh, characters, like high fantasy characters where everything was dragons and people were wearing their their oldie, tiny uh, Renfair outfits? Gora the Haven Master is dressed as this weird Renfair dude, complete with the pixie boots. It is a weird offset between these two characters and their costumes. It is fascinating, to say the least.
3: And it's pink and green. That's the best part. The Haven Master is wearing a pink and green outfit that's very... Oh, yeah.
2: So one of the other things that prevents people from finding this secret base is not only because it's painted black, but because they have these transeptor plates that ricochet radar off of it, which is also interesting because at the same time, stealth aircraft are starting to become very popular. So during the 1970s, uh, this guy, Dennis uh, Overholzer, was uh, working with Lockheed and he figured out this formula that if you put plating onto aircraft at certain angles, you can reflect radar and not have it go back to the to the receiver, but have it bounce off. So essentially, making uh, the the plane invisible to radar. So uh, there was a Russian scientist who also developed a program called Echo One, uh, which allowed you to kind of predict radar signatures of an aircraft uh, with these flat panels. Uh, and I just find it fascinating that even though this is supposed to be top secret stuff. Um, there are still people that are talking about this during the time that this is being printed. In fact, Lockheed Skunk Works, they're the ones that were doing all the secret stuff in the 1970s. They mm. actually built an aircraft with a low radar signature with these faceted services that was developed by Dennis Overholzer in uh, in the in the yeah. early 70s. Oh,
3: so it's really his cool. friends call him Oscillation.
2: I'm sure they do. Um, yeah. If anyone has seen this 1982 movie with uh, Clint Eastwood called Firefox, um, it's, terrible. it's a terrible movie. It's actually based on a book that came out in 1977 called Firefox about a fictional uh, Soviet um, radar invisible jet that was also mind controlled uh, called the MiG-31. So if you ever hear people talking about the MiG-31, they're talking about this fictional jet. It's made up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we learned all about the space station and why everyone can hang out. And uh, he's shown them around the station. We learned that Roxas has been hiding away on some planet for some time and just couldn't stand it anymore. So he escaped. And then he's getting the tour, and then suddenly the side of the uh, space station buckles in. And surprisingly, no one gets sucked out into space or loses the ability to breathe with a giant hole in the side of your space, in your space station.
3: Well, in first place, it would be blown out into space uh, by the pressure from the inside. But yeah. secondly, yeah, that doesn't happen.
2: Uh, so, Although you know, it's
3: interesting that the Legionnaires are wearing space suits. When that's they break that's my that whole
2: that point, hole. right? That's my whole point is they're coming in from outside Shouldn't all these guys be sucked out into space, be blown out into space because of the decompression?
3: Well, Cosmic Boy is not wearing gloves, so it's clearly not a hard vacuum.
2: Uh, Apparently Um, not, but we do find out how they discovered this uh, hidden base.
3: Right, because when you paint it black, not only do you see a red door. But you paint it black and it's against the black background, you're fine. But if you sneak around to the back of the thing that you don't know where it is, you can see it perfectly outlined against the stars on the other side. Yeah. Because the galaxy, that's how the galaxy works, kids.
2: That is how. Space that has is indeed how the, the galaxy on works. all the stars on
3: one side and all the darkness on the other. Yes.
2: So during this epic battle that's going on with people taking out other people and space villains falling and losing consciousness – Element Lad realizes that, oh, my gosh, that's Roxas. That's the guy that killed everyone on my planet. You, you of course, remember when Roxas killed everyone on my, on my planet, right? Oh, if you don't, let's take a few moments and do a uh, a travel back into the past. And then we see uh, his planet being destroyed by Roxas and his pirates. If I remember correctly, uh, Element Lad's planet, it was like... Uh, they wanted, like, gold and jewels and everything. And people are like, oh, yeah, if you want gold, just just take the gold. Look, that, that street lamp-, lamp over there, that's made of gold. Just go ahead and help yourself. And they wanted more, more, more. And then uh, they chased Element Lad across the galaxy because he was the lone uh, survivor of their people. And they wanted Element Lad to convert, um, you know, lead to gold for them so that they could be ultimately rich.
3: Yep. That, and interestingly, in that original story, it was, uh, I want to say, Adventure 307. Something like that. Roshaw's, Roshaw's men actually say that it was an accident, that they didn't intend to kill all the Traumites. And by the way, in that story, there were like 12 people on Traum.
2: Okay. So, so it was, Traum.
3: At, at that point, it wasn't like a whole, you know, thing. It was they killed a small village. Yeah. Rather than we wiped out a whole planet. But,
2: Let's, you know, scale it up. Scale it up for, the, for modern day. Oh, sure. I, I didn't really make the connection that Traum, the planet that 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 Element Lad is from, is kind of a, basically a shortened version of Trauma, which is, I think, what Element Lad has after you see your entire populace massacred. Does that make sense or, hear, am, or am I do off hear, on that?
3: Do you hear the silence?
2: No, you don't. You don't agree with me on that?
3: I don't disagree with you. Though. I, I okay. think it's a bit of a stretch.
2: I don't know. Anyway, uh, (laughs) Element Lad uh, decides to take an immediate vacation and decides to track Roxas on his own. But thanks to the hypnoprisms, which is a nice nod back to a device that we've seen before, um, Mm -hmm. they find out from uh, Gora where Roxas is hiding, and he's hiding on Trom.
3: The last place you'd expect him to be. And Element Lad shows up with his fatal frap gun. And he's like, oh, Roshas, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to kill you dead. I'm going to turn you into nitrogen. Oh, but if you
2: kill anybody, if you kill anybody, you're going to have to be kicked out of the Legion. So, you know, pull that trigger on on your own risk.
3: Yeah, and Starboy actually, and this is nice, calls him out. and says, remember, I once killed a guy back in Adventure 342, you remember, and I got thrown out of the Legion, and a Legionnaire never kills, at which point... Element Lad screams, that I resign, and shoots Roshas dead.
2: Oh, but he doesn't, because Chemical King also happens to be on the team, and he right. uh, he drained the battery of the uh, of the gun. So all it did was hi- fire off a little bit of uh, gas, and Roxas is still alive, but Element Lad has learned his lesson. He's like, oh, in the heat of the moment, I killed the guy, but I realized this was my worst mistake I have ever done. And they're like, no, don't worry, he's not dead then Roxas comes to and he's like, look, I've been plagued by the guilt of all the ghosts of everyone I killed on this planet. Please, I've gone mad, mad. I tell you, mad. And he becomes incurably insane.
3: Yes, this is a great story, man.
2: It is not bad.
3: It is a good story. And the thing about it that really works is... The bits of continuity aren't, like, huge, sort of, voot, voot, here's a continuity. Starboy, with the exception of maybe Starboy saying, I didn't know your whole family died, but Starboy was like, yes, this happened, and throughout the whole sequence, if you actually look at the Legionnaires… They're all kind of weird and panicky and trying to figure out what to do. And uh-huh. Starboy's like, no, don't do it. But if you look at Chemical King, the whole time Chemical King is just standing there like, I got this. Yeah, don't worry about I it. I got this. Yeah. He jumps in Superboy's way. This is Chemical King's finest hour. I think this may be the first time Chemical King has been the key player in a story. Because every time you know it, he showed up with Timberwolf, hi, I'm Timberwolf's friend. And he's been in like four stories yeah. since
1: then. Yeah, it's
2: really crazy.
3: Yeah, it's really nice. This is the first story I read with Chemical King, and this is why I like him. And uh-huh. I realize now that based on all of the stories of Chemical King, this may be the only reason that I like him, because mm-hmm. this story is so strong. And then so, that you know, final it, panel of Rosha surrounded by all of the angry ghosts. Yeah, all the ghosts. Like,
2: yeah. Ooh. Now I've commented before that I'm not a big fan of the constant retelling of the Lightning Lad origin stories, but mm-hmm. I think when you think about um, what you said about when uh, Star Boy was kicked out of the Legion, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned an exact issue, and that's a long time ago. It and is. So it's, I think it's it is. Years. I think it is important to where we start seeing origin stories or retellings of the origin stories starting to pop up here and there, not taking an entire issue, mind you, but even if it's a panel or two that you can get a little bit of a flashback or a redrawing of that story in another way to make it more modern. I think that is important for new readers. And as DC starts to get a big following with the Legion, or really at this point has a large following with the Legion, you're going to be getting more and more readers on board. So it's really important to have these kind of uh, origin stories set uh, in the more modern time period of the 1970s, so that people can identify that as uh, this time period as opposed to eh, those old comics from the 50s. Nobody reads that stuff anymore.
3: Well, I mean, that Element Lad, that Mystery Lad story is from April of 63. So kids reading this were under years, 12.
2: That they would yeah. be in their 20s now.
3: Yeah, but uh, kids who are reading this who are under 12. Don't even know that that story exists. Yeah, exactly. We're not alive when that story was printed. So this story calling back to it and giving us more Roshas and setting up some of the best parts of the Volume 4 Legion actually works. I feel like Mm -hmm. not only is this a good use of the continuity and a really good use of Grell, uh, because I don't think Element Lad has ever looked better, even when he's wearing his uh, hip boots and his evening gloves over his space suit at the beginning. Yeah. I don't think this element lad suit ever looked this cool before or Mm -hmm. again.
2: All right. The Legion's lost home, which is the uh, second story in here is a relative, relatively short story. The, the previous one, the ultimate revenge took up a big chunk of the comic. And so we only have a few pages to tell the story of the Legion's lost home, whatever happened to the rocket ship. And uh, (laughs) we uh, go to the junk planet uh, the Carnival Graveyard. Um, Canaveral. Oh, it the like Canaveral. Canaveral. Oh, okay. The, the Canaveral Junkyard, where yeah. if you look on this panel, remember how I've been complaining about <laughs> how the Legion's uh, spaceships look like the Enterprise. Right mm-hmm. front and center in this junkyard is the Enterprise propped up there. Yep. And if you look, there's the Jupiter 2, and then there's yep. the, uh, the, the, the ship from the Altair, and then there's also the 2001 A Space Odyssey pod. And if you look way in the background, that would be the, what is it, the 1950 World Fair, whatever the big uh, tech fair was that was in New York City uh, that they have back there, that World of Tomorrow kind of look uh, is back there in the back. And then on another panel, <laughs> you see Flash Gordon's uh, jet, rocket just hanging in there and it's like oh my god these people are really throwing great sci-fi under the bus
3: yep they're all dead because this is a thousand years in the future
2: yeah and that's all i really have to say about this issue about this story it's cool I it's a I, cute I just little like, story I, I like that they're able to just pull these ips in uh you know it's it, to actually put jupiter 2 or to actually put you know something that is very apparent that it's the enterprise and say oh yeah, yeah the star trek that's that's for the junkyard kids
3: no, that's not what they were doing. It was just nice little things. I mean, I looked at that uh, thing that you say is the Flash Gordon ship, and I'm like, is that the yellow submarine?
2: No, but it's not. It's it's Flash Gordon's uh, rocket ship from the old this, serials.
3: This story is important for two things. Okay. One, One, it explains what happened to the old uh, Legion clubhouse. Yeah, they just junked it. Right? They threw it in the trash. Uh, until at the end of this issue it's taken over by the legion of substitute heroes
2: and it oh. gives us
3: awesome new costumes for stoneboy fire lad and chlorophyll kid that are never seen again i,
2: I is this also the introduction of fire lad
3: no fire I'm lad's not. been around okay because i think it's just because he
2: has this weird heat miser haircut that yes, i'm buying thrown a plan by for him. hair yeah oh man that's so weird
3: He's the guy who sneezed and set Legion headquarters on fire. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Who's that? And now he has control over his. So
2: not only does he have the heat miser hair, but when he first comes in and he's lighting fire onto Cosmic Boy, who turns out to not be Cosmic Boy. um, What's the What's the crazy cartoonist guy that has the flying heads in space and and all of that stuff that we Fletcher Hanks? Yeah, Fletcher Hanks. Man, when when Fireboy comes in or Fire Lad comes in, he looks just like a Fletcher Hanks cartoon. It is it is creepy as all heck, and it's it's frightening That's to nice. be. I'll, I'll tell you, it's frightening. But it turns out that uh, uh, that it is uh, Cosmic Boy and uh, Shadow Lass are actually two criminals who are in disguise, who are cosplaying as our heroes so they could get into the old legion headquarters and retrieve a diamond that the guy had shoved up his rear end when he was put into jail and he hid in a secret compartment all these years.
3: <sighs> the old perfectly lifelike rubber mask trick. Yeah. You gotta love
2: it. Stone the boy's, boy's costume is really weird me. though. I will say.
3: I like stone boy's costume. It's a precursor of the very, very naked legionnaires to come. Yeah. Um, it's, it's got no arms, it's got no legs, it's basically a nice leotard and some cool gloves, but uh, this may be the best chlorophyll kid costume ever. Chlor has had some terrible suits, and I have to admit, Fire Lad looks pretty cool in these pages.
2: No, he looks hot, he's on fire. Anyway, they bust him in the head, the owner of the junkyard is like, hey man, how about you guys just take over the Legion headquarters, the end, womp womp, the, there you go.
3: The Legion sent them. They have actual proof. They're like, oh, they gave the old clubhouse to you, eh? Well, you can move it and you can live in it, see?
2: Yeah, it's a a cute little story, but I mean, it's kind of ridiculous.
3: Yeah, it's just a nice backup. Yeah. I mean, that, that Element lad story is so impressive that you're just like, yep, this is a great issue. Bye.
2: And that wraps it up for this installment of the Legion Clubhouse. Thank you so much for downloading and checking us out this week. Matthew, what did we learn this time?
3: We learned that attempted murder is not enough to get thrown out of the Legion, even if murder is.
2: Also, racism racism is bad.
3: I don't think that we needed to learn that. But we also learned that NCC-1701 also stands for garbage. So who knows?
2: Thank you so much for checking us out this time. And don't forget, you can check out our website, Majorspoilers.com, for more back issues. And until next time... I'm old Codger at the Junkyard Man.
3: And I'm General Zod, new boy.
0: The Legion Clubhouse is a production of Major Spoilers Entertainment LLC and is produced by Steven Schleicher. Your hosts were Matthew Peterson and Steven Schleicher. You can follow Matthew at Mighty King Cobra and Steven at Major Spoilers. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Legion Clubhouse. If you have questions or comments, send them to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. I'm Jason Inman. Until next time, eat it, Grandpa.
2: This podcast is copyright 2020 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.